Hey, Cabot Cove Gazette fans, this is TJ coming to you with a little favor to ask of you. So my dear colleague and co-host Bridget is currently undertaking a survey on both Murder, She Wrote and Angela Lansbury fandom for a book she is currently writing. So if you are as in love with either Murder, She Wrote or Angela Lansbury as we are, we, she and I would love it if you could take about 30 minutes, it's uh, 30 questions on the questionnaire, to speak a little bit about your own fandom, what drew you to Murder, She Wrote, and so forth. And you can find the link for it on our Cabot Cove Gazette social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks very much in advance. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, our favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast and yours. I'm Bridget Keyes. And I'm TJ West. Today, we are talking about the episode Capital Offense. TJ, what should the actual name of this episode have been? It should have been, Mrs. Fletcher Goes to Washington. <laughs> but so, alas. What, 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 what? Alas, they weren't consulting us, you know, who were in our infancy when this episode was on the <laughs> TJ was not even alive. Okay, so. I was too. We have, you were not. So we have. Yes, I was. I was born in 84. You were in your infancy. All right, then. I'm going to have to edit a lot of this out. Okay, so this episode, Jessica goes to Washington uh, as a temporary replacement congressperson because the congressperson has died. And while she's there, of course, there's a murder. And it turns out one of her staffers actually committed the murder. Sounds really simple and easy to follow, doesn't it, Teach? It does sound on paper (laughs) very easy to follow. Uh, Not so much in a post-dinner quasi-somnolent state, but... Nevertheless. Well, because it's a really complicated storyline. So we have the, the murder that takes place while Jessica's in Washington, the murder of Marta Craig, who we're told is, quote unquote, on the party circuit. And I think we're supposed to believe that she is a sex worker. Um, I would say that's probably true. Yeah. Yeah. Who gets involved with lobbyists and other people um, in order to persuade votes. Right. And she her murder is a set up. They set up this other Congress guy, Kepner. To make it seem like he's the one who killed Marta because Kepner was there the night that the congressperson Jessica's replacing actually died. And he died at the home of this lobbyist with Marta and Kepner. And they didn't call an ambulance and they moved his body. So super shady stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm especially troubled by the fact that they never, they, we deliberately hear them saying, no ambulance, no ambulance. Like, right. he might have lived. Yeah. It's kind of fucked up when you think it's about it. It's super fucked up. And so the next thing we know is we hear the governor of Maine's assistant telling Jessica, like, we need you to go to Washington and fill in uh, for a reason that actually makes no sense. Something about the election coming up and the party favorites. Like, in, in real life, people would just name a nominee. Who cares? But whatever. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, I Part of me loves the unabashed nonsensicalness of the setup. Like, the idea that they would appoint a very high-profile private citizen... <laughs> yes. To be a senator... Specifically a, because she is so impartial. 
I see. Which is absolutely what governors like to do when they appoint people to offices. Look for impartiality, right? I was like, I'm no expert about 80s politics, but I'm pretty sure that, you know, the governor of a of a state would not just appoint someone because, as you say, they're just nonpartisan or that they're unbiased. Like, that's yeah. just not how politics that's not work. how it works. But he specifically mentions while he's explaining this to Jessica that um, the dead congressperson Joyner was found dead at home in bed. Mm-hmm. So that's how we know that there's been a cover-up about his death. So as TJ, um, you know, as I was teasing TJ at the beginning of this, the, the episode actually has some really complicated storylines. But the general gist of it is that Washington is a place of really a lack of ethics, uh, scandal, disregard for other people. It's really callous. And so what Jessica brings and what she convinces this other guy, Kepner, ultimately is that it can be a place where people care about each other and do good. Right. And I mean, that's one of the, you know, as far as how the episode begins, which is with, you know, a pretty typical overhead shot of Cabot Cove, is it helps to, you know, set up this dynamic or this this contradiction, or what am I saying? This contrast between Cabot Cove on the one hand and the seediness and corruption of D.C. on the other, which it repeats in many different ways. There's the fact that the congressperson is found in an alley basically being mugged by a homeless person. There's the moment when Jessica is like called to a dinner with, you know, someone who's an influence peddler. And, you know, there's all these moments when it's, as you say, it's just really highlighting the mendacity and the seediness and corruption in a way very similarly that it does to other kind of urban settings, which we saw in Los Angeles. We saw it with New York City at the very beginning of the show. So it is setting up this kind of, you know, this contrast between small town values that Jessica exhibits and, you know, and that's why I deliberately said, like, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Fletcher goes to Washington, because it's very a very similar sensibility to that all-American rural slash small-town values coming to the Capitol and trying to fix things. Can we talk about some of the ways that Jessica doesn't get how Washington is done? Because mm-hmm. those are some of the, like, delights of the episode. So, I mean, there's the obvious stuff. Like, she relies on her secretary, uh, Diana, who is played by Linda Kelsey from The Big Chill. She's also Mary in my favorite Prison Riot episode of Murder, She Wrote. But she um, has to tell Jessica, you know, like, okay, we have a committee meeting. Okay, you need to read this. Like, that kind of stuff. But then Mm -hmm. there's also, like, things where, like, the guy tries to hand her a file, and she's like, you can't take that. The guy tries to invite her to dinner, and Mary has to tell her, no, 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 you can't, you can't, you can't go that. He's a lobbyist. That's not your, that's ethics violation. And it's just really sweet to me how she doesn't get that. And then the best of all of them is when they're at the committee meeting and the food magnate who was involved in Joyner's death is testifying and he starts speaking and Jessica's like, I do not understand. Like he's literally just reading words that are already written on paper. Why on earth are we all sitting and listening to this, right? Like he could just give us the paper. Mm-hmm. And Diana's like, that's how it's done, man. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there is, I mean, that's part of the reason this episode feels so timely, like, because we still live, you know, even now, ugh, almost 40 years later, are still kind of contending with the disconnect between sort of everyday Americans, if we can call them that, and Washington and the halls of power. And so there's still this similar, and there's, even, if anything, there's an even greater hostility and, and downright skepticism and even verging on cynicism about the hall, you know, the, about the halls of power in D.C. and who wields power and why and what shady things they're always engaged in. 
Yes. Uh, that's not where I was going with that example, though. What I was thinking was that uh, as academics, we attend conferences mm-hmm. where people give yes. papers. Some people, bad presenters, have their entire paper written out and just read it. And it leaves you with this question of like, why am I listening to you read something when I could just read it myself? This is a giant waste of time. So as an academic like that, that was funny to me. But I also think it's like Jessica is someone who's like, like all of this pomp and circumstance that we have with Washington is just, it gets in the way of actually doing the work, right? Mm-hmm. Like I could just read this brief. I don't need to sit here in committee and listen to you for two hours. But, you know, Tej, you say there's connections to today, and it occurs to me that the best moment that really jumped out at me because of recent votes is when Jessica's late to another committee meeting and Kepner is filibustering to delay the vote so that mm-hmm. she can arrive in time to vote. And I was like, wow, what a week to be watching that because mm-hmm. yes, we're constantly yes. debating the filibuster right now. But, of course, here's an example where it works to our advantage, right? Right. And it's just so striking, as you say, that, you know, Jessica has is an innocent in, in Capitol Hill. Like, it, it's just it goes right to the very first moment when she meets her secretary who expects her to have brought her own staff. But Jessica is so unprepared for this that she doesn't even ha- like she doesn't have her own staff. That's why she keeps the people on board is because she doesn't have well, her own. And she also keeps them because she sees how stupid that is. Like, why do we? Right. Expect everyone to resign every time we turn over an administration. They have all that institutional memory. If they're good at their jobs and they like their jobs, why wouldn't you keep them? It just makes sense, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, she has a logic that is – it's different than Washington's logic. I guess there's a logic Mm -hmm. to Washington, but it's like – it's the common sense logic, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I enjoyed that. And, I mean, I think that what gives Jessica's critique of Washington, D.C.'s methods – its power is not just obviously the sort of ubiquitous and longstanding tradition of seeing small town people or the small salt of the earth having a kind of wisdom that big city people don't have, but it's specifically, as you say, Jessica's own logic. And the fact that Jessica as a character, we've already learned by this point, you know, does have a very methodical and sensible way of life and way of living and being that I think adds a certain kind of potency to that criticism that it might have otherwise lacked. Yeah. So probably the best example of that is that the episode revolves around a cannery bill, completely nonsensical. Yes. Apparently, we need the U.S. Congress to debate and vote upon whether or not we can build a factory in Maine, which seems like it would just be a zoning ordinance to me, but whatever. I mean, if, it would have made more sense if they'd made it like a military installation. Like, if that, you know, that would have bill. made much more sense. But a cannery, I was like, hmm, okay. It's a cannery bill. So... The two guys who were involved with Congressman Joyner's death, one was a lobbyist and the other was the president of the food company that's going to build the cannery. Um, and they had, you know, they were trying to get Kepner drunk to convince him to vote for them, right? But then when Joyner died, they had to cover up Joyner's death. And now they're worried that if it's discovered, the bill will flop, right? Jessica says for the whole time that she's going to make up her own mind, right? Um, when she first arrives in D.C., Andy Travis from WKRP, Joe, who's our killer for the week, is driving her around and she tells him, you know, I am, this is another J.B. Fletcher zinger, I'm not your adulpated great aunt from East Nowhere. <laughs> I love that line. Later she tells the secretary, Diana, like, no, I'm, I'm actually here to, like, do work. I'm going to make up my own mind on these things, right? Um, so she's debating how she feels about the cannery bill. 
And ultimately, she gets her Mr. Smith moment. Uh, I feel like you should talk about that, though, because you really liked that scene. I did. And that's the sort of like, obviously, it's not central to the murder per se, but it was, for me, at least one of the most important moments, especially given that we have talked many times on this podcast about Murder, She Wrote's kind of progressive sensibility, which it doesn't usually be this explicit. Like, it's not usually wearing its politics on its sleeve. But in this moment at the hearing, she kind of calls out the can't, not kind of, she just straight up calls out the cannery people for the fact that they've basically abandoned the American worker. Like she says, you know, you've opened up five or six other canneries, but they've all been and left to basically rot, wasting material and labor that could have already been employed. And, you know, all you care about is basically your bottom line and making sure that you make money at the expense of your employees. And it's really kind of striking, especially, I mean, most especially in the 1980s, which is yeah. like the, the era the era of me, as Sophia puts it in Golden Girls, me, 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 and like the, go, you know, the golden age of greed. And, you know, this is, this is smack dab in Reagan's America. Like, this is smack dab in big corporations and make all as much money as you can, as fast as you can. Like, this is very striking. And I mean, as we've said before, it's on CBS. It's not exactly like, you know, this isn't HBO or some other kind of more progressive network. Like, this is straight up middle America stuff. And, but that's what makes it so much more powerful coming out of Jessica's mouth, being, you know, really calling them to, ta- or, you know, taking them to task for their abandonment of the American worker. And it's another of those moments that just feels so relevant and powerful in 2022 yeah. because we're still dealing with this largely because of exactly what was happening in the 80s. Like, the 80s sowed the seeds of what we're dealing with today. So it's, again, one of those moments where Marty She wrote really shows how relevant it is as a show remains. It's a wonderful speech that she gives because it's written in such J.B. Fletcher style. It's cutting, but it's charming and sweet. Like, she's not angry. She's not yelling. She says, now, I'm sorry, but I'm not okay with that. You know, it's like so like stern old lady it's just a delightful speech and in fact uh everyone in the committee hearing starts applauding even the chairperson starts applauding and then he like catches himself and is like hey hey order order here right Mm -hmm. but so i love that you know the the applause which wouldn't happen in real life but it's just like wonderful like jessica has persuaded everyone and in fact they all vote her way they all turn down the cannery yeah, which is, you know, I just think it's one of those moments that Murdy Short excels at so well at being political, but not necessarily making it threatening, which is a very, very fine line to walk. Yeah. And I don't think that anybody else but Angela Lansbury as J.B. Fletcher could have pulled that off. Like, it's it's one of those really moments where her signature stardom really shines most brightly. So we should talk about the actual murder, which is happening in parallel to all of this. It's definitely connected, but it's not also kind of connected. I don't know what the right word is. So the murder of Marta, uh, first of all, I just, did you notice how many times Angela Lansbury says murder? No, I didn't. She always put an R at the end of it because she's British and I loved it. Mm, That's a good catch. I had not noticed (laughs) that. Um, Anyway, so Marta, it turns out, was killed by Joe, the staff person, the media person, um, in Jessica's Congress office. And she figures it out because Marta was beaten to death. It's really gruesome murder. We don't see it. Uh, we're just told that she was absolutely beaten to death. And there's a and scene there, at the morgue where Jessica I was just gonna sees say, her. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. 
where Jessica sees her body and like the look of absolute horror on her face is really striking. Like we don't get these kind of gr- like grisly moments very often, but no. for that reason, they they really pack a punch. Like it's it's clear. Yeah, and there was there was like literally no reason for that scene to be at the morgue. It was just a conversation between her and the police officer. The only reason was so we could see her take a peek at the body and have that absolute horror. Mm-hmm and disgust at the way Marta looked, right? So it's a really gruesome murder, unusual for murder, she wrote. Uh, And Jessica figures out that it was Joe because in the first scene when he picks her up at the airport, he's wearing gloves while he's driving. And the next time he drives her around, he's barehanded. Um, So she figures out that he could have murdered Marta. The makeup and the blood could have been on his gloves, which he then discarded. And he's connected to Marta because they went to, what, the same college? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Along with Diana, the other staff person. Uh, it's a very small place, Washington, apparently. Probably actually is. I was going to say that is actually um, true from what I've heard. <laughs> yeah. And so the thing that was a question mark for me, and maybe you can help me understand, was that are we supposed to believe that Joe knew he was scheming with Marta to blackmail people that she'd met on the party circuit? Is that their connection? That was my understanding. Okay. Yeah, that was what I, that's how I kind of understood what was happening which is why i said when on our pregame like it feels a little baroque to me like this the plot like the murder plot feels a very bit ornate to me and and sometimes maybe even i would also go as far as to say like opaque yeah i mean i've seen this episode dozens of times and i truthfully i'm never like entirely clear on Joe's connection to Marta and his motive mm-hmm. for murdering her. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I mean, I thought perhaps it was just me, but I'm actually glad to hear you say that because I too was just like, mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, because I don't think that's really the point of the episode. Like, it's not the point of the episode. Uh, yeah. It's no. like, it's again, it's one of those moments where the politics is just sort of nestled within the, the murder plot, which, you know, there's the surface and then there's what's the, the actual meat of the episode, which is more about. Well, yeah. It's the, 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 the point of the last episode was so that we could have fun with hypnotism. Right. right. The point of this episode is to see Jessica do Congress. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, exactly. Right. <laughs> like, it, so it, you know, it's all kind of inconsequential, except I will say that um, as Jessica's rehashing how Joe did it, Joe says what I think is the theme of the episode. It's a sort of explicit message of how the episode views Washington. He says, there's a price tag on everything and mm-hmm. everyone. And that's his sort of admission of guilt. And I think that is the the view of Washington that we're supposed to understand that Jessica is implicitly working against, explicitly working against. And, you know, she's going to leave. She's only here temporarily. But right. she really persuades Kepner, you got to get yourself together, man, because Washington needs you. So I think he's supposed to be our hope for the future, that there can be a different Washington. Right. And then he's also, you know, a recovering alcoholic, which or well, he's inactive addiction during the course of the episode but then she kind of helps him get back onto the path to recovery which you know which was rather sensitively handled like it could have been a much more like condemnatory episode but i thought it actually did a good job of showing like that there is hope for people recovering from addiction which you know i think that's an important thing to suggest given how you know we tend to pathologize and exile such people like in our common 
imagination. But I have a question for you. I mean, given what you, what you just said about the fact that the episode, you know, at the end of it, Jessica's going to go back to Cabot Cove and Washington will go on as it has. Do you feel that this episode is fundamentally cynical in that regard? Like, I know that we're meant to feel at least that there's been some change. But mm-hmm. if, in fact, you know, we're just kind of sentenced here to this perpetual you know, influence peddling. What do you think? I mean, I, I'm kind of torn, but I want to see what you think before I kind of... No, I, I think we're supposed to believe that um, there is hope. Yeah. You know, there's people like Kepner are going to try to change the system. Joe's been caught. The lobbyist and the food president have been stopped and caught in their complicity in joiners, covering up joiners' death. So I think... Mm-hmm. We're supposed to feel like there's a cleaning house happening and that maybe things will be okay. Okay. I mean, I, I buy but that. But this is, you know, this is like, well, you know, Reagan's start of Reagan's second term, you know. In some ways, I mean, things are kind of grim, right? Mm-hmm. If you're not a supporter of Reagan, it's like, oh, right. God, he was reelected. The same politics are going to carry on for four more years. That's wrong. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And that's, again, that's what I think makes this episode even more powerful, perhaps now than it did, than it felt at the time. Like, yes. And, you know, it's perhaps another call. Maybe we need another J.B. Fletcher <laughs> in the uh, in the Senate or the House, I guess she's in the House. But I would totally vote for J.B. Fletcher, wouldn't you? I would too. I wouldn't even care what party she is. Yeah. I think she, because she'd be like, she'd be moderate no matter what, you know? So it's like, she'd be a good centrist, I think, and... I mean, she's what Susan Collins wants. I feel like she's what Susan Collins wants to be, but is never actually because she doesn't have any principles that she actually adheres to. But anyway. Oh, please don't turn this into a political podcast. We'll lose people. I'm not, but I was going to, maybe we can then switch to some of the episode's lighter moments. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you want to talk about? I want to talk about Herschel Bernardi, first of all. He's the one who plays the police officer. Mendelssohn is amazing. I love this character. As I mean, I'm familiar with Herschel Bernardi just because, I, I mean, I've known the name and I've known him, like, from other roles. He's, you know, was in the revival of Fiddler, which, you know, obviously, you know, you could see shades of that coming through. Because it's very explicit about his Jewishness, which I think he's it's not... so, yeah. Like, he's that's so something Jewish. you don't always see. Because, I mean, Hollywood, as we know, kind of has a habit of both employing Jewish folk in large numbers, but also, if like, kind of erasing them. Like, their Jewishness is usually erased in some way. Yeah. Um, but this... No, I mean, the last thing we get from him is um, t- telling Jessica that he's going to take her to Delhi. And, and introduce she's her like, to Lux. Lux. Yep. Yeah, she doesn't know what Lux is. I don't believe that. I don't believe that And either, then but... the best part, the music supervisor in this episode was having some fun because at some point when Jessica's driving around the Capitol, we get a few bars of Yankee Doodle, which is amazing. And then at this end scene, while they're talking about going and having Delhi, um, we get a klezmerized version of the theme song. So it's like super Jewish. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. He also, you know, he does like stereotypically Jewish things. Like he's complaining all the time about his stomach, but he's, but it, it's, it's, it's how he um, instinctively leads his investigations, right? When his stomach is acting up, he knows something's wrong, mm-hmm. and he's complaining about his feet all the time and his back, and he's barefoot rubbing his feet. I mean, he's he's amazing. I love this character. I had, I mean, not, I don't know, again, I don't know that this was deliberate, but some my classic Hollywood senses were tingling when he was talking about his stomach upset. Because if you've seen Double Indemnity, you know that Edward G. Rods, Robinson's character talks about the little man in his stomach all yep. the time as a, you yep. know, as, as a signifier of something not being right. And so I, I can't, couldn't help but think that maybe was that was a callback. No yeah. connections to Lansbury, but still, I couldn't help but think that that's some kind of allusion mm-hmm. to classic Hollywood. 
And we have him, and we also have um, this character, Thor, who is, like, not really important mm-hmm. to the story, and his character's, like, not even very well sketched out. But, like, his name is Thor, which is amazing. Like, of all the names they could have picked for a character, they're like, let's call him Thor. Mm-hmm. And then, um, can we talk about the gossip colonist? Yes, 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 yes. Yes, please. Because I did mention her earlier when I talked about, like, when Je- Jessica has her lunch with her, but we yeah. can certainly elaborate on... Because, she so, first of all, she brings her cat... That's what I want to talk about. <laughs> to a restaurant. Like, I mean, a dog, I would understand. Like, I could, because you see that all the time. But a cat? She I, brings a cat to lunch at a restaurant. And um, as, I, like, I am literally writing down, what restaurant allows this? Jessica literally asks the same question. Like, and the woman's allow- like, no, they nope. don't allow it. But it's me. So, of course, I have a cat. And then, like, the cat's, like, sitting on her chest. And then she's going to eat. And I'm sure there's cat hair everywhere. It's like, what is, what is? What? <laughs> I don't know. It was great. She's just another, like, passing character. Uh-huh. Like the woman who's convinced that Jessica was a soap opera queen in the last episode. Right. So they're just, like, passing character who's just really funny and really well sketched out. Yeah. I, lo- I mean, this is one of the things that I think that's one of Murder Show's great strengths is it knows how to make the most out of these, very, as you say, incidental characters that aren't played by anyone that we necessarily know but they make such an impression just because they're so commanding and i I love that about this show that it gives this kind of both uh, textually like i enjoy the presence they have in the show but i also enjoy that it gives you know because it's such a a sprawling cast like every episode includes like many many people you have to think like you know as i've alluded to before like this is giving a lot of work to a lot of character actors which is no small thing Well, yeah. I mean, she's played by Edie Adams, who's been in film and TV since 1954. Mm -hmm. And then, um, as I said before, Diana is played by Linda Kelsey. Uh, Kepner, the redeemed alcoholic congressperson, is Stephen Macht, who's going to be in five other episodes of Murder, She Wrote. And then our food magnate. Ray Dixon is played by Mitchell Ryan, who's in a four murder she wrote, and of course is Rex Blanche's Hunting's abusive yeah. boyfriend, Rex Huntington, and the Golden Girls. There you go. So really, uh, again, a stellar cast of you know, where have I seen them froms? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's part of the pleasure of rewatching this show in particular is just because it really is a time capsule for a very different moment of television and television stardom. And so that's part of the reason I enjoy watching it. And I'm sure that some of our other fans do too. Um, can we talk about Jessica's clothes? Because of course, her wardrobe is very different in this episode as if she understood the task of being a congressperson and shopped for it. Her clothes are so smart. Like they're, um, they, in the last episode, she's wearing camp shirts and neckerchiefs a lot. I mean, it was really dreadful clothing, except for some wedge espadrilles that I didn't get to talk about last week um, that were pretty great. But this time, it's silks, tweeds, um, really beautiful colors, you know, polka dots we never see her in. But these are, like, fancy polka dots. I mean, she just looked really great. So it was, like, as if J.B. Fletcher got this invitation from the governor and then was, like, I better go to Boston to get some clothes for this. I mean, yeah, and I mean, I think that's very much in keeping with Jessica's persona as she's already been established. And I, again, I think it's one of the strengths of this show is that it really does almost everything that happens and anything that Jessica does and anything that any kind of setting in which she finds herself, it feels true to the character. And that's not always true of t- you know of shows like I mean, because it's 
understandable when you have so many episodes, but Jessica is one of the most consistent television creations I've ever seen. And I think that's part of the, her enduring popularity is because, she, as you say, she feels so consistent, even in new settings. Like, she's wearing the kind of clothes that you would expect Jessica to wear, but that are distinctly appropriate to this new setting. But that if you're a loyal viewer, you're like, hey, these are new clothes. Like, mm-hmm. And then you craft this backstory, like, oh, she must have gone shopping because she knew she needed something appropriate. I mean, that's damn good costuming and damn good writing. Yeah. Like, that's yeah, really this extraordinary... In any this is, I, I also have to say, though, um, she's wearing a blue suit at one point, which is where we get that famous meme of her sitting in a leather chair with her glasses in her hand cocked outward. Um, so that meme, we'll, we'll put it up on our social media, but it comes from this episode. And it, it's just fun when you're re-watching the series and you're like, that's where that meme came from. The, well, that one true. Came from this and I, episode. I mean, that's something, you know, some kind of some kinds of TV shows you sort of associate with memeing, like they just are memeable. But I mean, that's, I don't think that necessarily everyone really kind of sees Murder Short in that light, but it's, I think we, something good to draw attention to is just how prevalent they are. Like, I mean, obviously I think the one most people know is her eating popcorn. Like that's probably the most yeah. ubiquitous and commonly used one. I know I, I use that use... one like once a month. <laughs> at least I use it at least once a month. You guys can, I'm just a quick aside, like um, TJ and I always use the same memes and like literally every time I tell him anything, he uses the one from Casablanca. <laughs> Of um, the Frenchie saying, uh, Renault saying, shocked, I'm shocked. <laughs> like, it's true. Every time I tell him anything. So he's kind of a jerk. Like, yeah, I already knew Bridget. <laughs> I am kind of a jerk. It's true. Um, <laughs> we hope that you're enjoying this quality banter, by the way. Like, I know that this is part of the big, the big reason you all tune in is to, to hear us sparring with each other. That is kind of the, oh, which reminds, well, we, we won't blow the, the Seth Jessica reveal. But we'll set we'll set the stage for several episodes. In. There's gonna be when you guys you need to keep listening until season two because we have something really important to tell you. We about do have something really important. We do really. It's very important. in our parallel to them. Yeah, and it's not that we're moving to Maine. No, although I was thinking is every time I watch this and they give us a, sh- a shot of Cabot Cove, I think, man, I could really live in Maine at least in the summer, not in the winter. I don't know. There's only three thousand people in Cabot Cove. I just think. I grew up in a town of a thousand people, That's so we've way. already had that conversation on this podcast. We have podcast. had that conversation. Yeah, I like Jessica in the big city. Mm, um, me too. I just have a question though. Like, don't like Congress people have researchers and stuff? You would think so, but I mean, because are you uh, talking about how Jessica like kind of looks over the stuff herself and like educates herself about the the bill? No, she... because some people actually do that. Um, I'm wondering how nobody the entire time this cannery bill that shouldn't be a bill is being debated. Nobody bothered figuring out that this company already had canneries in Maine. How is Jessica the first person to figure that out? I would guess that they've greased a few uh, wheels to make sure that it was gliding through. (laughs) But actually, you know, this gets to something that I've been wanting to talk about since you asked me a question about um, how the industry looked at audiences a few weeks ago. You know, we were talking about some plot, some plot hole. uh, And you said, you know, are we supposed to just sort of overlook that, right? And it occurred to me that we had a whole conversation about um, the way people watch, but we didn't really talk about, like, how 80s TV operated and the mm-hmm. fact that this is just the beginning of the start of people getting VCRs at home, you know? And so you're really, you're watching in real time mm-hmm. with commercials. You're getting up to go to the bathroom. You miss a scene. You're making dinner. It's noisy in the house. And so I think um, to a certain extent, you and I, are watching now in the digital age it's a focused watching 
We're watching without commercials. We're watching when taking notes. And that's really not authentic mm-hmm. to how these episodes were originally broadcast. And so when I pick apart something like the ridiculousness of the cannery bill, it's not that audiences were stupid in the 1980s. They absolutely weren't. But um, they weren't necessarily watching the same way that we watched. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of plot details might have just not mattered because they people might not have picked up on them. So what I'm hearing is that it's actually a good thing that I was half asleep from eating dinner because that would have been appropriate. I would so was... fail you if you were in my class. Yeah, well, I'm not in your class. Um, but what I'm saying is that I am recreating the authentic 1980s murder she reviewing experience. That's what I'm. That's what I'm getting at. That's true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I also want you to make dinner and then like make sure you insert commercial breaks. I actually it does on Peacock. It does have commercial breaks, not long ones, but but it is. I'm actually I'm actually getting closer to the authentic viewing experience than you are. Good. There you go. So that's my that is my contribution to this (laughs) podcast is that I am the authentic. I watch on Peacock too, hon. But that's okay. Then you should have known there were commercials. (laughs) Good lord. Wrap this shit up. <laughs> this is all getting cut. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I'm guessing some of this will be. <laughs> anyway, you want to take us out? Well, that's probably a good place to end for now. Frustrated with the cannery bill, as Jessica was, but very much appreciating this episode and its really complex look at Reagan era politics um, and the way that people might try to fight against the system that seems stacked toward corruption. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I loved it. I mean, I I think that this actually would rank pretty highly now that we've had this conversation. I think that it's actually gets a higher ranking than it did when I, when we sat down to start recording today. That's awesome. Good. So that's a key, good job on the proselytizing. Bridget. You're welcome. That's a good place to end then. Um, so for the Cabot Cove Gazette, I'm Bridget Keys. And I'm TJ West. And we'll see you next week. The Cabot Cove Gazette's theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nagarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We're Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter.